All right, guys, welcome back. Thank you for joining us here at the show that is yet to be named um, in a more sufficient sense. But we're talking about sufficiency today, so that will help us, I believe. I'm here joined with Pastor Matt again, who preached this week. Say hello, hey Pastor Matt. Hey, guys. Uh, we are going to tackle a few fun but heady things at the front end and then jump into some more application as we go through today. Uh, so hang with us or just skip ahead. It's up to you. Um, this one is, is, is bonus. So with that, you brought up one of, uh, a term and kind of left it hanging out. So I figure we, we could just very quickly define it a little bit more. Um, what is semi-Pelagianism? What is semi-Pelagianism? Um, well, uh, semi-Pelagianism, if, if I can put it in just as simplest terms as possible, is really just the idea that uh, man uh, and woman or mankind are generally good and just need um, a bit of help from God. So we are morally good, generally, but maybe just need a little bit of help. So that that's in opposition to we're totally depraved. Yeah. Not utterly depraved, but totally depraved, meaning we can do no good um, apart from God's grace. Mm-hmm. Uh, utterly depraved, meaning I, I do all evil that is possible. I am currently doing all evil that as is possible. As evil as I could be. I'm as evil as I could be. Yeah, exactly. And we, we believe God's grace is restraining uh, the total comprehensive evilness that we could each exude on a daily basis. So semi-Pelagianism would see that we just need a little bit of God's grace to kind of get over that hump. And would it be too far of a stretch to say that that goes hand in hand with Arminianism? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it functionally is kind of the same thing. It really it, it, it you does. can't you can't be an Arminian and not hold to a semi-Pelagian view. Yep. I mean, yes. Yeah, we were at kids camp of. Uh, several years ago and and this is one of the big things that kind of helped us exit that pattern uh one of the sermon talks teachings whatever you want to call it given on one evening use an example um that said look at this smile you see these teeth on the smile that's you you and your bright smile now you see this crud that's on top of the teeth that's sin we need to get rid of the sin how do you get rid of the sin well, you just need Jesus to clean your teeth so that you can get back to good you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That That's semi-Pelagianism. The problem is, is you don't have teeth. And if you have teeth, they're rotten out and gone, right? I mean, that would be the appropriate Ephesians 2 passage. <laughs> There's a difference between having shiny pearly whites and being dead on the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, semi-Pelagianism is, a, is the fancy term for what we really see all around and, and is... A very common accidental approach, even uh, just from us being human, it's 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 very similar to um, most of our cultures' the f- uh, understanding that we're basically good. You know, humans are are good people. This restores my faith in humanity. Type language, all of that stuff. Um, you should have no faith in humanity. We're terrible. We're terrible people, apart from the grace of God. Mm-hmm. That's the Bible story, and, and I think too that that. Leads us into two different things that I want to kind of tackle. Um, the first is the the fall in general. One of the biggest issues that we see, I think, 
Hey, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I think before we go there, we need to go to the end. Because I was looking at semi Pelagian, I was like, I was trying to think, like, what's my, what was even the context in which I said that? <laughs> was it even in my notes? Uh, so I just did a real quick search, and I and I found the context. And the context of that was in the practical application of where we functionally deny the sufficiency of the scriptures. Oh yeah. And one of the places where we deny the function out, uh, functionally deny the sufficiency of the scriptures is when we only want one part of the scriptures and not the other part. And we've yeah. given other examples like that of we only want uh, the the soft, kind, uh, nice Jesus. We don't want the the rough, dangerous, yeah, yeah. Uh, flipping the table Jesus. Um, and in this situation, it's in where the scriptures are profitable for rebuke and correction, where one part of that, the reproof side, is the is the the bringing low. And then the correction side is the bringing up. Well, we only oftentimes want the the bringing up piece. And then I made the connection of like, well, why do we only want the bringing up piece? It's yeah. because we're semi-Pelagianists, yeah. meaning we, I don't need to be brought low. I'm I'm actually good. I just I just need to be brought up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So you 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 brought up earlier the idea of like I uh, at least as we were talking before we got started here about the idea of I can't fix or correct until something's been assessed so can you like share a little bit more what yeah, you're thinking there that, that makes total sense I want to just be brought back up because I think I'm already good yeah and we haven't actually assessed the the true nature the true issue that so when you were talking about that idea of we can't um, correct until we reproof. It was for me thinking of woodworking because that's my life. I can't fix something until it's been assessed. So someone comes to me with something and says, Hey, can you fix this? I don't know what's wrong with it is the question, right? What yeah. needs to be fixed? What was supposed to be there? What did the original look like? All of these yeah. different questions. What's not right. What's not right. And so that implies that something's wrong. <laughs> It does, and, and that's what that does. It, it should, and and we just completely skip that component. Well, nothing. But that's not kind. Nothing's wrong. Just it needs to be better. But that's not nice. But that's what I am told. The gospel is nothing's wrong with me. I just need to be better. Uh, I'm just wounded. I'm wounded. That's right. Trauma. Those okay. things. Right. So the 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 Got challenge it. though is that in woodworking, I'm looking at this thing and okay, yeah, it, something's missing. It chipped. It's it's dinged. It's stained, it's miscolored, whatever. It's going to be harsh for me to sand that issue away or even worse to have to cut it off, cut it away Mm -hmm. before fixing it, before gluing another piece on, before recoloring it, matching it, all of those things. That's the reproof. That's the assessing of the issue and before we can get in there and correct it. But that, again, leads to (laughs) where something has to be actually wrong with it. You can't just have this assumption that it's okay. You know, it's interesting because the appearance there, if I think about that in two parts, the appearance seems the same. Uh, If I could use a descriptor, um, hurtful or wrong. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's two descriptors. You have the the first part is where I, where the sin happened, that that's hurtful, it's wrong, it's, it's brokenness. And then on the flip side of that, the other part of that is what appears to experientially be the same. Hurtful, 
painful, which is the having to kind of dig it out. Yeah. The reproof, like actually having to sand or maybe even cut away or take apart. So kind of just from a very shallow human experiential observation, what you see there, you could easily interpret as being the same thing. Yeah. And then, and then write off or dismiss or even call evil Mm -hmm. the act of reproof. Yeah. Because if you're, if you have a shallow interpretation, a non-biblically informed and biblically authoritatively uh, interpreted understanding, then you're going to see the reproof Mm -hmm. the same way you see the other. Yeah. And that's, I think it kind of gets to the heart of some of the issue there. Um, is the scriptures are not sufficient to tell me that the reproof is different than the sin that necessitated the reproof, even though the experience of pain is present in both. Yeah. Yeah, that needs to be something that we figure out a long time before we get to Hebrews chapter 12, because it's going to be a bit, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's part of discipline. That's part of the growth, though. Uh, And even in our kids, we know that growing pains are not necessarily the most exciting thing. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. That that's a good track on that. And this brings us to this point of the fall in our morality because I think for us to uh, misplace, misname those things that are reproved, that are corrective to us as being sinful, is because our sense of morality in general is corrupted. As you were uh, preaching on Sunday, I was just thinking that we neglect this entire picture of the fall. And again, in our liturgy, we, we do creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or restoration. And the fall thing is, is a always a confess your sins so that we're prepared to hear the word type thing. That's the way that, you know, Greg leads us and very thankful for that. But yeah. from a theological, philosophical, the way that we think through things perspective, we have to recognize that as we do that, our our baseline sense of morality is corrupted. And we talked about this in the podcast last week. You talked about it in the sermon this week. Last week, I called it a a misguided or misplaced rationalism. Again, Mm -hmm. people only do what makes sense to them. And the problem is, is when we do, when we experience wrong in our um, air quoting right now, when we experience these things that feel like sin, it's based off of our perception. It's based off of our sense of morality, but that is corrupted. Mm -hmm. that's what it means to be under the fall. And so that's why we need a transcendent governor, something that's outside of ourselves, something that is going to tell us what the norm is. Mm -hmm. As you're speaking to authority, it's normative. We need that that's outside of us so that we have a common standard, right? When we ask the question by what standard, that one, the, the transcendent one that's outside of me, it's outside of you and it governs, our morality and we need this just for ourselves but let alone when we start considering relationships you you want to talk about the the serpent's first attack it's at that same thing with the word yeah i mean satan satan goes uh first for creating uh discrepancy or distrust around god's word um so you know we we as a church believe that that all sin ultimately is is rooted in uh, misbelief or wrong belief, uh, believing the wrong things. Um, so, namely, believing something other than what God has said. 
And so, you know, he starts off with, well, he didn't really say that, did he? He didn't really mean that. He's a liar. You can't trust him. I mean, those are the implications as well. And all these things came out of nowhere. Yeah. You're just yeah. dropping these on the God who just created and gave you yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, Adam had no, no reason to suspect God other than Satan's thoughts that he just threw out there. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, that's one of the easiest ways to undercut the authority and the sufficiency of the scriptures is for, for us to begin to um, say, well, I, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's trustworthy or that's um, what's best for me. Now, they, the thing is, for, for most of those of you who are probably listening to this, you're not looking at the scriptures saying that's not trustworthy. Where you and I are going to fall to the same, um, the same problem is by not seeking the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. Just, just assuming I'm most trustworthy, which is, again yeah. gets us back to the rationalism. <clears throat> I'm most trustworthy. I've got this figured out. I'm good. I know all the Bible, all that there is to be said about this, and all that the Bible has to say about this. So I'm good. Uh, we actually think, and, and, and so we put the sufficiency on ourselves mm-hmm. instead of on the Word. Yeah, so. that's huge. That's Yeah, exactly. It, it becomes not a necessarily a, a vocal decrying of the Scriptures, but it's our functional uh, faith and belief. Yeah, that's super helpful. Well, um, we do it in that fashion, but we also live in a culture that does it explicitly. And I think it's helpful for us to see that this isn't just an old timey thing for me coming out of school and into ministry. I thought that this was already handled. (laughs) We, (laughs) yeah, we've already had our faith fathers tackle this in America within the last 50 years. Um, this must be good and done. And I came across this, this, uh, message from John MacArthur at one of their, uh, conferences, the 2006 resolved conference. And if you'll bear with me for a minute, I think it's super helpful and establishing kind of a recent history of the fight for sufficiency. Um, Because I I know if if you're not really in Bible school or care about recent church history, you probably don't know these things. But it's really helpful to see how the culture is constantly evolving this attack. And it hasn't really gone away. It just keeps taking different shades. And it's something that we have to be aware of. Else you're going to hear all of us pastors talking about the sufficiency and be like, yeah, I got it. (laughs) I believe the word. Well, This is where we have to tackle. So he says, you know, I was like anybody else in seminary. I just wanted to preach. I wanted to pour my life into a church and be a shepherd and see what happened. I wanted to love my wife, raise my kids, just have a simple normal life. I never thought I'd be in an endless war. But as it turned out, when I came out of seminary, the battle was raging very hot on the issue of the authority of scripture. Liberals had come along and denied the scripture was inspired. They denied that it was authored by the Holy Spirit. They denied the fact that there was one divine author of scripture. They said it was a human book, different people giving their spin on their religious experience. And so those are the most outright blatant things that you could probably say. This is where it's it's probably most clear uh, when they're just saying, no, I believe the opposite, right? So 
him and, and I think a hundred other folks um, are involved on the Council of Biblical Inerrancy. They came up with the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. You brought that up actually two, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, this is one of the statements that we, we would hold to. Um, it's not necessarily a creed, but it's in that mm-hmm. same kind of category. Yeah. And so uh, they tackle that. They defend it. Boom. He says, but no sooner had that been set aside than sort of the next decade of my life, psychology came into the church. And psychology didn't even talk about Scripture's inspiration. It just talked about Scripture's lack of sufficiency. It redefined man, and here you, you see these redefinitions happening again, just like with the servant. It redefined man as some sort of psychological being which put him outside the purview of Scripture. And he had to have psychotherapy before you could even begin to apply the Word of God. One person ended up saying that they can't even begin sanctification until they have had proper therapy. Mm, wow. So you see in this breakdown, you see the redefinition, and it starts to take different flavors. Um, he says, it just so happened that in the following session, I took issue with that. Hmm. Shocking, like, <laughs> which created an interesting dialogue. It was yeah. very Johnny Mac. Anyways, he goes on to talk about a different one where he's uh, having um, a debate with some homosexual uh, pastors and <laughs> we're debating these kinds of issues. And their response to me was when I pointed out what the Bible said about homosexuality, they said, well... The Bible is psychologically and sociologically unsophisticated, and it cannot be applied to contemporary life. Mm. It's not really adequate for our time. Mm. Well, they're not going to say that it's not authoritative, but here we see it's not sufficient. It's it's out of time, and we can't apply it here. Mm. So they put that one to bed, right? No sooner had we put that to rest, the next thing I know comes the seeker movement. All of a sudden, they don't want to talk about the scripture's sufficiency. They don't even want to talk about scripture's authority or inerrancy. The issue with them was the scripture's priority. They thought the scripture didn't need to be in the priority place. They just shuffled it out of the pulpit. They pushed it aside and replaced it with entertainment and all kinds of trivial speeches. And he puts that... You're talking about the pragmatist movement or the church growth movement I was talking about on Sunday there. Yes, that one. And he says that they fought that with even Psalm 138.2, which says God has exalted his word above his name. Mm. (laughs) Right? Well, they just want to talk about God. Well, God says, I've exalted my word above my name. Hmm. So we attacked that. We fought that battle. And I turned around not too long ago, and there's another one, the latest one. Now, this is from 2006. Uh, So we've kind of fought this one, and it's it's moved again. But he says the latest battle is the clarity of Scripture. The old word is the perspicuity of Scripture. The emerging church, which is a fast-growing movement, loves ambiguity. And you still see the echoes of this playing out today, even if it's not... Uh, a prominent necessarily movement. It works really well for them. It fits in a postmodern world. It fits in a world where you can invent your own spirituality from the bottom up rather than from the top down. Rather than a revelation from God, you have an intuition rising from man. It's kind of spirituality without scripture and without theology. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that ambiguity coupled in the realm of the lack of sufficiency of scripture just created a rich soil for movements like critical race theory mm-hmm. and critical theory and intersectionality and uh, power dynamics and all these things that um, they, they love to have no um, nailed definitions for these things. And then they love to kind of uh, sneakily work that in on top of 
Christians and their genuine call for compassion or genuine call to compassion and to loving their neighbor, and then just kind of slap these worldly ideologies right on top of that. Um, and the church just grabs a hold of that. Why? Well, because for generations they've said, well, the word's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's just syncretism. Yep. Um, it's just adding to the scriptures a new creed uh, that we have to follow. Yep. Full of worldly ideas. Yeah. So 10 years from one issue to 10 years to the next issue to 10 years to the next issue. They say that you can't be certain about anything. I've been forced to give up certitude. It's idolatrous. If there is a foundation in Christian theology, it's not found in Scripture. <laughs> theology must be a humble human attempt to hear God. Never is it about rational approaches to texts. Yeah. Yeah. And so what are you actually talking about? And he says, if there's no uh, foundation in Christian theology, it's not found in scripture. This is paganism. And so as these things fight on, we find ourselves here today. And he, he goes on to say this last thing. He says, they all want to say, well, it's all amb- ambiguous and it's, it's all unclear. Uh, we can't know what it means. There are all kinds of interpretations. And if you interpret it one way, you are arrogant and you are intolerant and you are heavy handed and you are divisive and you're dogmatic and you're doctrinaire. And we reject all of that in, in a spirit of love. <laughs> uh, thank you for Thank you, Johnny Mac, for making sure you communicated the the tone for us. Oh, you know, praise God for that, man. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So this is not new. Th- that's even just a recent history. This has been the fight for a long time, and it shouldn't surprise us that it's all centered around the word. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think that's a good segue into Romans twelve. Let me read Romans twelve. Um, I'm working through Romans in my own time with the Lord in the mornings here, and I read this a few days ago, uh, and there just, uh, there wasn't, there was application for it this past Sunday, there's greater application for it this coming Sunday, so I'm going to, it's going to make its way in to this coming sermon, but he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the the context here is clearly someone who is their entire being, everything, inside and outside, uh, physical and immaterial, is, is holy and acceptable to God. So they're walking in a way that every part of their life is an act of worship unto a holy and perfect God. And, he, and then the second verse is really, uh, so how are you going to do that? We're going to do that by not being conformed to the world, but by being transformed by the renewal of your mind, and that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and perfect and acceptable. So I just wanted to draw out the point that, first of all, there is a perfect will. So there, there is an objective, perfect, standard plan, uh, direction that we're headed, there, there, there is that. Yeah, you this, brought that up Sunday, saying it. you might have to study, but you don't have to guess. There is a standard. Yes, yes. If you're guessing, 
then either you haven't studied your Bible well enough, or you're trying to make a standard that God doesn't make a standard on. Yeah. Or he makes a standard in a way that's related to it. So you can, you, you're free to choose A or B, but he's written a standard of how you get about choosing A mm-hmm. or B or how you get about doing A or B. Yeah. So the second thing then is uh, and kind of related to that is we can know it. Mm-hmm. Like we can know it. He says, he says that by the transform or be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So this renewing of your mind. And then the act of testing. So there's a, an active applying of what you've discovered. Mm-hmm. This renewal of your mind is going to come about by the power of the Spirit through the Word of God. That you can actually discern this. So it's, it's A, it's there. B, it's knowable. And how do we do that? Well, we got to ditch the dumb thinking of our world. So don't get caught up in the way the world thinks but be transformed, that the, the Word is sufficient to transform us uh, to discern what is good and acceptable uh, and holy and right and is for our good and for the love of our neighbors and so on and so forth. So, yeah, we should see that connectedness to sufficiency. So we can know. We can know. We can love. That's right. And then we can what? We can obey. Because duty isn't dirty. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Because Jesus is Lord over all. Well, thank you guys for joining us again today. I hope this is uh, still helpful. Just enjoy kind of exploring different components of Sunday. There's a lot of background, as you can see, to some of these different things. And just want to try to open some of those up. Uh, For your study, for your edification, we, again, want to help you know, love, and obey the word of the Lord. And so with that, we will see you guys next week. Thank you, guys. See you, guys.